0: I think we need to have humbling experiences from time to time, because the moment that we lose our humility as a leader, the moment that we start to believe the stuff that's coming out of our mouth, we start to sort of like the sound of our own voice a little bit too much, I think we really miss opportunities. We miss opportunities to grow ourselves, and I think it just makes it harder to get things done. Hi,
1: I'm Michelle Aronson, and welcome to True Stories at Work where we discuss the best things about working in human resources, the people, the stories, and the things that happen at work that we don't even know about. I'm a recovering HR executive, certified coach, and business school professor who knows that the best stories happen at work, from heartbreaking to heartwarming, from hilarious to outrageous. Today, you get the pleasure of meeting Adam who took many risks in his HR career, including telling his boss that he wants to look for a new job at another company. We discuss the curious cases of second-hand outrage, where an employee is enraged on another employee's behalf.
0: I'm mad as heck, and I'm not going to let other people take it anymore.
1: So let's get started. Adam, I'm glad to have you on the show. Would love to know a little bit about you, your background. Where did you grow up, and uh, what was that like?
0: Thanks, Michelle. I'm really happy to be here. I consider myself an Alabama native, and my family moved to the South when I was pretty young, and so I had this sort of unique experience growing up. After my parents had separated, I spent my school year in the South, and Mississippi, and then Alabama, ultimately, and I spent my summers on the family farm in upstate New York, so I had this uh, sort of uh, schizophrenic existence that was mostly all joy, but very much learning how to navigate planes as, as a kid, uh, which is a very useful skill these days in my career as I crisscross the country for various business and personal endeavors.
1: I love it. What did you do on the farm?
0: Well, my dad is very much sort of the fun dad. So mostly it was lots of games. My Summers, you know, my family in New York was very uh, collaborative. And so often we didn't even like to play competitive games, actually. We'd play collaborative games. Uh, Dad's an environmental scientist. He was always trying to foster a sense of sort of teamwork and being kind to one another. But I did have a few summers where I would work on the farm. So we had a dairy farm in addition to a crop farm, a, a feed farm. So, you know, I might be shoveling out the barn and we had a large organic garden. So it'd be helping to plant there. So driving the tractor, uh, they had this little low cart that would get towed behind the tractor and you would have basically just boxes of, of seedlings uh, or small plants. And you'd, you know, the tractor would carve the soil and you'd drop the, drop the plants in by hand. So that was kind of fun doing that on a summer day in upstate New York and really beautiful up there.
1: Yeah, it sounds fun. It also sounds like a lot of hard labor. Quite frankly, that sounds like shoveling out the barn and yeah. and hanging low on a tractor sounds like um,
0: real hard labor. But when you're when you're doing something like uh, shoveling out the barn, you find ways to to sort of have a little bit of fun with it. We had these little um, there were flies everywhere, and <laughs> I just can imagine all the cows. And so we had this little gun thingy that we can fire, and it would like basically killing flies in the barn and stuff like that when we break something. So, you know, you're eight, nine, ten years old. You find uh creative ways to entertain yourself, even in the midst of uh an otherwise challenging uh piece of work.
1: <laughs> What's old is new again. It seems like everybody has an organic something and and is raising chickens and, yeah. you know, goats and all that kind of stuff. So you're you were ahead of your time. I, I guess so.
0: I guess so. I was living my best life as an 80s kid. What can I say?
1: <laughs> I guess when you were younger and you were looking forward in your career, what did you want to be when you grew up?
0: I was really committed to the idea of being a teacher for the longest time. I was so inspired by my teachers growing up. I was a quiet kid. You know, I was bullied a little bit here and there growing up as well. And so I felt like I often had better connections with my teachers than I did with fellow students. And you know, I had a couple teachers that were really impactful in helping me develop a sense of confidence in making me feel that even though I sort of stood out because I was maybe maybe I was a little bit smarter than So my uh, peers, or I was a little bit more shy, or I was nerdy, and I would get picked on for different things. And the teachers kind of made it cool for whatever reason. Like, I appreciated that support that I got growing up from so many wonderful teachers. So I found some passion for that. So when I got later in life and working through college, I ended up on an educational track that would take me into teaching, like college professor type thing and didn't didn't quite land in that way, and we can tell that story, but teaching was always sort of a passion. And I would say even today, the beauty of being a human resources professional is so much of what we do has a teaching element to it. And part of the creativity and the ability to perform at a high level in HR, I think, is knowing how to navigate what are teaching moments without necessarily letting the person that you're teaching kind of get a sense that you're teaching, you know, because there's a lot of egos and a lot of pride out there that can make it challenging and sensitive in its own way.
1: I love that. It's like a sneak attack of teaching, right? A little bit. What ended up taking you into the world of HR? How did you uh, move from teaching to human resources?
0: So I was working on uh, my PhD at Washington University, and the program was very rigorous. I have nothing but respect for WashU, but I think it was pretty clear after about a year and a half there that the program wasn't really a good fit for me. It was very theoretical, and it was almost too academic for me. And so I kind of burned out of that program, to be honest. I went to my graduate director and said, I think I'm going to finish up the semester and I'm going to go do something else. And I had my first real dose of kind of a year fired moment, which was the graduate director at the time said, well, okay, that sounds good. So why don't we wrap you up in the next two weeks? So it was like March and I was like, well, I was kind of hoping to finish out the semester. And he was like, well, why would you finish out the semester if you don't have an intention to pay? because they were paying me. And so I hadn't really thought through the idea that, Hey, if I make this choice, that there might be a consequence there. I thought I'd be supportive. And said, oh, that's fine. We'll wrap up the semester. So I kind of fell out of school rather than dropped out. And I'd walked in the door of the staffing agency and they were trying to figure out what to do with me. And I left through a series of five jobs and ended up as a data entry person making about 10 bucks an hour. And... I got really lucky working with my first boss there, Lee, who was very focused on developing people, very invested in growing people, and just like an absolutely just a gem of a human being. And so I worked that temp job for a while, and I thought I had some skills from graduate school that I could bring to use there. And so they were doing a lot of reporting for a big business transformation that they were going through. And so I automated a lot of their reporting. I built like an access database for them. They had hired me to do this data entry. And what I really did was try to make that work easier. And my boss was the organizational development director. And he was like, ah, I think I can use this uh, skill set." And so over time, over the course of three, four months, I remember putting together a business case or putting a job description. I'm like, this is my shot. I got to get this job, turn this thing into permanent and eventually charmed Lee and the other members of the team there and got hired on permanently as an organizational development analyst. And the job description was essentially keep doing what you're doing. And if there's other problems you think you can solve in the business, let's go figure them out. It was a wonderful place to learn. There were lots of interesting, complicated projects all over the business. They were breaking the business down by selling off the company. So I came in at this time that was rich with opportunities for a resources professional to get involved and make a difference. And so I was really lucky that I was able to convince them to take me on full time.
1: That's such a great opportunity too to be able to sort of break and make at the same time, right? You're you're dismantling the old way of doing things and able to put it together in in a new way. So
0: you're evolving in your HR
1: role. And I guess where where did you go next?
0: I felt like I was starting to get on the corporate merry-go-round. And so I went to Brad, who was the SVP at the time, and I said, I don't know if I should talk to you about this, but I'm kind of thinking that maybe I need to move on and do the next thing. And like, is that okay for me to talk to you about? And, you know, he goes, well, obviously, you know, we'd love for you to stay. And he kind of talked me through what I was thinking. And he goes, You know, I'm not going to sit here and tell you that you can't leave because, you know, I've worked at six companies. So I'm the last person that's going to tell you that you have to be a hostage here forever. So he was really, as a boss, made it okay for me to think out loud about what I needed to support my career. And it was so gracious of him. And I think that motivated me to start looking for the next thing. And I saw this job that, With a sort of a nonsense title it it was like regional manager people planning and engagement or something it was just it was like a somebody really focused group uh the heck out of that title and they wanted 10 years experience and i had like three three and a half years of experience and i remember thinking like i'm not there's no way i'm going to get this job i shouldn't even apply and i remember taking it uh to to brad and saying i just don't know this seems like they're looking for a lot more experience than I have. And he he goes, yeah, but if you read it, 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 they're asking you to do all the things that you're doing here. So why wouldn't you at least throw your hat in the ring? The worst they can do is tell you no. And um, so I ended up getting that job. And so it was a good lesson learned. And we see this a lot nowadays about how inflated job descriptions continue to be. And I mean, ultimately what companies tend to think that if I put a big years of experience number there, that I'm somehow gonna get a better person. And it just doesn't correlate. <laughs> they just simply don't correlate. And I'm very lucky that I was a recipient of the good graces of my colleagues at to see beyond my years of experience and see the, the value. So I went on to work for I and mean, that was a cool gig because I worked across uh, the US and Canada and then ultimately was promoted up to their uh, corporate headquarters in London. And so I moved to London and lived and worked at the corporate headquarters in london for a couple of years doing work around diversity and inclusion employee engagement and so you think about that first eight years of my career from 10 bucks an hour as an independent contractor to running global programs in the london headquarters of a multinational insurance company was was pretty darn cool
1: that's incredible there's so many parts to what you were saying that you know resonate with me the first one is The ability for your boss to support you, even if you want to leave the company. How powerful is that? The other thing that I love that you said was really around what we write in our job descriptions and how we're hiring and years of experience versus skills, knowledge, abilities. We just aren't, we aren't always clear on what will really help our companies grow so i i loved both of those those
0: stories yeah well we often think that you know with the job description piece that again we're we're going to be so smart and creative with the way that we write our job description that that's going to solve it and you know ultimately what you want is to have a process that encourages the widest mix of people to be interested in what you're trying to do mm-hmm. and then be open-minded enough that when the diamond in the rough who maybe isn't a complete perfect match for what you need that there's an opportunity you're creating opportunities for that person to shine in the interview process and that you're willing to do the work to set them up for success if you choose to hire them as well because of my own story and because of the way that i started my career i've really tried as a leader to be much more open-minded to the kinds of skills and backgrounds of the people that work for me. And I think that that has allowed some of the people that worked for me over the years to really thrive. And I think back and, you know, I'm not going to name names, but I think back about people who I've either worked with as a colleague on a team or have reported into me who are off now as you know directors and VPs, or they've gone on to do great things. And that's not because of me, but it, it is. This sort of the pride that I have, I've worked with people that have this tremendous potential and I have tried to do whatever I could at that time to give them room to grow, give them room to explore their potential, give them room to make mistakes. And um, hopefully I've given them good feedback along the way that's given them the courage that they needed to advocate for themselves, to not settle, and maybe to throw their hat in to the ring for a role that maybe wasn't a perfect fit, but they were really excited about. And maybe they got lucky enough to nab that opportunity.
1: Yeah. I think you need to have room. You have to have somebody above you who's, I don't know, blocking and tackling and giving you room to grow in a safe way. And um, it isn't because of you, but it also isn't not because of you. Uh, A more controlling boss would have had a different, uh, a different outcome. So um, that skill is uh, is
0: critical. I don't think it is safe. I don't think it's ever safe, actually, oh. because I think, <laughs> I think that the reality is is like in order to grow, you kind of have to be willing to put your neck on the line sometimes. You have to be willing to throw ideas against the wall. You have to. One of the toughest things that I've had to learn to do in 18 years in my career is to share the half-baked idea to share the proposal, right? Because I'm the kind of person that wants to get it perfect. And I want to, you know, have it buttoned up and have it perfectly like this thing that I think we need to go do. I need to have it all figured out. And the reality is sometimes bringing a great idea that's maybe half-baked and then letting it get pressure tested a little bit and taking the risk is so Mm -hmm. important or having a courageous conversation with your boss about something that you need that isn't getting served. So I wish that we could promise to people that growth mm-hmm. came without fear or risk mm-hmm. or difficulty. But uh, sadly, that is not the universe that at least I live in.
1: I, I think that's a really important point. Let me get into some of your stories. So, when we're talking about your experience as an HR leader, what is one experience that really, really changed you or had an impact?
0: Yeah. So I ended up getting really lucky with a job at a video game studio. I love video games. And it was one of the hardest things that I ever did. And a couple of things really were coming up for me around that. One was I was entering a universe that I knew nothing about. So culturally very different, probably the most networked industry sector that I've ever experienced as well. So when you're an outsider to that environment, you know, you are an outsider. And I had, you know, all this years of experience and, you know, maybe 14, 15 years of experience at that point. And it was like, I've got all the answers. I'm going to come in with all of my answers and I'm going to make an impact here. And it just kind of didn't take, I think that I didn't take enough time to really try to understand the environment that I was trying to work in. And so while I was making friends and I was connecting with people, I wasn't able to get things done because I kind of didn't take time to build the relationships that I really needed that would help me move a little bit from the outside closer to the inside. I think the second thing is, is I started to see my boss as a competitor to me rather than as support. And that was not because of anything that she was doing, because I actually think she is fabulous. It was more about I wasn't open-minded enough to take the wisdom that was being offered. And so I I ended up kind of, you know, flaming out of that job and I got lucky actually the company that I left to go to the game studio brought me back in a more senior role even so sort of like kind of a cool story in the midst of this, of being a boomerang back to the company that I've been working for previously, but a lot of regret, I think from that experience of gosh, I could have made more of this opportunity than I actually did. So I think for me, it was a humbling experience. And I think it's important that as a leader, I think we need to have humbling experiences from time to time. Because the moment that we lose our humility as a leader, the moment that we start to believe the stuff that's coming out of our mouth, we start to sort of like the sound of our own voice a little bit too much. I think we really miss opportunities. We miss opportunities to grow ourselves I think we miss opportunities to build more authentic relationships with the people around us. And I think it just makes it harder to get things done. So that was such a tough experience because, again, going to work in an industry that I have such personal passion for, I really wanted to make that opportunity work. And it just it just sort of didn't work. Mm. And so that was a tough lesson learned. And it's something I really don't ever want to make that mistake again. But it was a, a necessary lesson I think I had to learn at that point in my career.
1: Mm. What would you do, like, let's say you take a new job and you start feeling that? Like, how would you help yourself
0: knowing what you've learned? That's a great question. The first thing I think you really have to do is acknowledge that there's a gap there. When you get into a state of you're feeling like things aren't going in the right way and you really don't want to ask for advice, you don't want to go and talk to your boss or colleagues And so the gap starts to get bigger between where other people are expecting you to perform and your sense of your own contribution in that role. And so as that gap gets bigger, the psychological burden of asking for help scales. It goes up and up and up and up. So the longer I go without asking for help, the harder it is to ask for help. And that is such a tough loop to get into. And that is the time to lean into the relationships. That is the time to lean in And the reality is you've got to let the chips fall where they may a little bit in those relationships, because no matter what response your boss gives you, you're going to learn something about that relationship that's going to help you navigate more effectively going forward. And ideally, in most cases, you're going to learn that you probably had support that you weren't accessing. So I think leaning into willingness to ask for help is super important.
1: Yeah. And you're gathering data. You're getting information on yourself. So I, I love that. What's your favorite HR story? What is a story that just sticks with you?
0: Mm. Uh, one story that's come to mind is we had an employee who was actually stealing from the company Had found a way to manipulate our systems and allow allow some theft. And, you know, it was an elaborate investigation and the person had a really close relationship with their manager. And one of the toughest things was navigating that situation with that manager because the manager felt so betrayed, so betrayed by this situation and their emotions were just all over the place and just the tears and the the anger and the frustration and really trying to navigate that. It was like a human in crisis because they were the kind of leader that really trusted everyone and really had such warm relationships. And so we were in the conversation with the employees, the manager, the me and the employee to let them go. And the manager was going through the scripting and all that sort of stuff and started crying. And so I'm sitting next to the person and i sort of grabbed their arm to kind of calm them a little bit. Because in my head, I'm like, this person was stealing from you. This person betrayed your trust. And so as, as an HR person, I think about stories like that. I think about that that we have to be ready to meet people wherever they at. And even if I think, gosh, I would be persona non grata with that person. Like, I wouldn't shed any tears for somebody who stole from me, you know? But the workplace is so complicated and ultimately we are just collections of humans in the workplace. And so I think that those stories really stand out for me because it's a reminder that we have to have compassion. We have to bring compassion to the table because there's so much fear and betrayal and anxiety that can just suddenly just fall out of the sky on you in the workplace. And as HR, we have to be able to, navigate that with grace and compassion. So that's probably the the story that's coming up for me in the moment.
1: I had the very same thing happen early in my career. And they were like embezzling through deductions that they were taking through payroll. And I yeah. would never have envisioned that that was even possible. I think stealing happens in very strange ways. And and. People justify it in a variety of ways, like a bonus yeah. plan, their own bonus plan, things like that. I always find that interesting.
0: You know, there, there are sometimes people feel that there, there's an entitlement, and, and that's really tricky to navigate. I think a lot about remote work and hybrid work these days, as I'm sure you do. We just rolled out our hybrid work policy. And we were seeing some of the comments. And what we noticed was there were people who were not required to be in the office who were rating the hybrid work policy lower, their satisfaction with that policy was lower than other people. And we were looking at some of the verbatim comments, and one of them was, well, I'm not required to come into the office, but I rated this question lower because I'm upset that other people have to come into the office. So you get that even though this person essentially had the flexibility that they wanted, they were expressing dissatisfaction because other people didn't have the same flexibility that they have.
1: I love how people are enraged on others' behalf, right? They're, they're mad that, hey, I'm fine, but I'm, ma- I'm still not perfectly fine because others are not uh, in my same...
0: It's like, I- I'm mad as heck and I'm not going to let other people take it anymore.
1: Exactly. I like that. That's perfect. That'll be the title of this episode. I have a question that I, I like to know from everybody who I interview.
0: What is your workplace pet peeve? I think the biggest one is probably speaking for other people. I really think, you know, in human resources, we deal with this all the time. So you get the second hand outrage. I heard from so-and-so that Joe is mean and we deal with this all the time in HR and I'll get some second hand outrage from somebody. But if I can turn it to a coaching moment, I do. How do you help people when they're in distress? Right? So what does a helpful colleague or friend do to support you around that, right? Do I say, you are so right, your boss is the worst and you have every right to believe what you believe or do I say, well, how could you make it better? You know, what are you noticing about the relationship? (laughs) So I can spin you up emotionally and I can feed your righteous indignation or I can be the kind of friend that says, well, how can I help you walk through that? You know, how can I be a sounding board to help you navigate that? So I think that often peers in the workplace miss the opportunity to support one another in a positive way. You know, no matter how many years I've been doing this, I just noticed that people don't like to miss opportunities to spin the emotional level up rather than bring it back down and come back down to solution. So that's my, my big pet peeve is secondhand outrage.
1: Secondhand outrage. I love it. Conflict is good in many circumstances, right? Conflict is not to be avoided. Conflict is creativity. Conflict is diversity. So, you know, good. I'm so glad you're having a conflict with your boss. Now it's going to happen, you know, like really kind of like pushing it back and and helping them to find new approaches, really, because complaining doesn't often get you very far unless you're complaining to the right person, which is
0: your boss. Yeah, I love what you're saying about you know conflict i mean i think i remember you know reading years ago about the performance of diverse teams right so diverse teams either overperform or underperform they don't really operate in the middle and that's mainly because you either are able to navigate all of that difference effectively and unlock the potential of a diverse group or you fight each other and hate each other all the time because you don't understand one another or you don't you're not able to empathize with one another and so i think it's super important to cultivate you know, healthy conflict, healthy disagreement, you know, and there are boundaries. I think I've had another pet peeve. It would probably be the way that people of uh, leaders, especially love to throw around radical candor mm-hmm. as an excuse to just be mean to people, mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. you know, and that they haven't, you know, probably haven't actually read the book <laughs> radical candor, but it's like, well, I'm just being radically candid and, and we need to get stuff done. And I, I can't afford all the niceties. And and that is shockingly common. It's sort of like I'm being direct. You know, I'm not being yeah. Yeah, I'm not being mean. I'm being direct. And I think that there's there's just fine fine lines to walk. I I'm very much a kindness first person, but I want to get stuff done. I'm not just because I want to be nice and respectful. It doesn't mean I have less of a desire to win, and it doesn't mean that I'm going to pull my punches on feedback either. If I need to give a direct message, I'm going to give a direct message. One of the things that you know i reflect on in my career and i think it ties to this conflict piece is about the role that fear often plays in workplace dynamics and internal mm-hmm. dynamics so you know how often is fear of a negative judgment fear of a bad performance review fear of a conflict preventing us from asking for what we need asking for mm-hmm. help sharing that great idea that we've been percolating on. And and we're, we can often get trapped in a bubble of I'm worried about what other people will think of me. I am often worried about what other people will think of me. And the reality is, I, I wish we could say that, you know, tell every employee to just let that go and take a chance and take a risk. But But the reality is, you know, there are plenty of managers out there that do rule mm-hmm. with fear of, you know, it's one strike and you're out. It's why are you asking me that question? Do you not know how to do your job? You know, all of these things that, you know, in our HR careers, we've coached and we've worked with managers who take this sort of very sort of black, black and white approach. And yeah, it's so important for us to learn how to, as just employees, to navigate and manage the fear and anxiety that comes up just through the day-to-day. A lot of that is the story. A lot of that is what's going on for us internally. And for me, the world has really opened up when I've taken more risks to externalize, to vocalize what I need, where I'm where I feel like I'm not being supported. And I did this with my boss about a month ago where I was feeling a little disconnected. You know, we've had some changes to our exec team meetings and I was feeling like I was on the outside. And. I saw him in person and I was super nervous because I needed to say, I'm feeling a little bit like our relationship is not where I would like it to be. And and these are the things that I'm noticing. And I would like your support to sort of come back into the fold and figure out why I'm feeling so disconnected. And you know, his response, his response was, you know, I'm feeling a little disconnected too. I'm so glad we're talking about this. And so I had spent weeks fearful that he was going to think I wasn't a good H- HR executive because I was wrestling with this thing. And he was sort of expressing some similar sentiment as me. And so this just want to encourage people when they're feeling that fear instinct, whatever's going on, it's almost always the right answer to talk about it. Almost always.
1: (laughs) Almost always. We'll catch that. I like that. Have and share your feelings even at work. I think people think that they should tuck their feelings in their glove compartment at work and then when they get out of work, they're going to open them back up. But um, we're going to have them everywhere. We've got just a couple of minutes. So I want to ask you if you have any questions for me.
0: I'm really interested to know from you and your vast experience like, what do you think is that quality of leadership that is a real difference maker? The difference between a, an amazing mm-hmm. leader and an average one?
1: Mm, there's there's a lot, but um, maybe I could pick two. Empathy is really critical. The ability to be with somebody, let them have what they're feeling and experiencing, honor that, honor what you're experiencing in the moment, even if it's a reaction to what they're having, and and just being able to support people as human beings at work. And then the other one, and it might just be a bias because it's one of my favorites, is learning. I don't believe anybody who knows it all. It is probably my pet peeve when people already know it all. It's hard to relate to somebody who already knows it all. I think being open to learning and At every single job, it's always new in in some ways. All right. Well, anything else you want to say that is left unsaid?
0: Well, just say very grateful for the time, Michelle.
1: Thank you. I really did enjoy this conversation. The pleasure was all mine. And um, you're welcome back anytime.
0: Thank you, Michelle. Great to see you.
1: All right. Take care. Thanks, Adam. Bye-bye.
0: We've all done something bad at work, but here's your chance to confess. From small wrongs like borrowing office supplies to simplify your back-to-school shopping or snacking on a co lunch, to the major workplace sins, the sex, drugs, and rock-and-roll type. Here is today's Conscious Clearing Confession.
1: Today you'll hear another story from my former colleague who chose to ignore me during an investigation that he initiated and then acted like I was harassing him as I followed through with the investigation. You'll hear both sides of this tale, and at the end it confirms that the time and money I spent on sexual harassment training had in fact worked. So we had just finished sexual harassment training. There was a video, and it was clever, and there were words and lines that would just resonate with you after the learning experience. And I learned how powerful that is when I approached a director who was having a bad experience with another director in his department. And I went up to his office and said, you're not calling me back. I've sent you three emails and now I'm showing up at your door. And I go to close the door and he quotes the sexual harassment video, screams, no means no as I close the door.
2: Yeah, the, pr- the problem was that you were on the inside of the door when I said no means no. <laughs> no.
1: I was closing the door. I mean, you did not want to talk about it. So I thought he was bullying you. But is that not true? Um,
2: he wasn't actually threatening me, per se, because I did not report to him. We were peers. So that, that made it a little bit difficult. So, I was speaking on behalf of one of his employees. And, as I recall, he was targeting this employee very aggressively. And I had a choice of stepping in and coaching his person, like to go to human resources, But that was a politically incorrect thing in his mind. So there was a lot of volatility and He caught wind of that and then came to my office and didn't threaten me, but made it very clear that I was on his turf and I was in his area and I needed to back off. And I said, I don't report to you and you need to understand that I also am a leader. And I reached out to human resources. They don't just want hearsay. They want specifics. They want to know when, where, how. Were there actually threats implied or real? They wanted facts. And I kind of wanted to just let HR handle it. So as is the case, Michelle is not fearful of confrontation at all. So she literally called me. I remember seeing her name on my phone and I did not pick up the phone. Little did I know that she was going to come up to my office. Well, okay, sometimes I forget that I'm in a hallway that echoes. And when she was standing outside my door or right in the entrance of my office, she said, do you mind if I come in? I said, no, I don't really think that I want you to come in. I don't think we want to discuss this right now. And she said, okay, thank you. And she starts walking in. And I literally yelled, no means no as the door is closing, she's on this side of the door. And I don't know what people thought in the hallway. (laughs) Here's the director of HR going into a director's office and he's yelling, no means no, and she's in there with him. But it was a good session. We ended up resolving everything.
1: I will say there was a threat and it needed to be investigated and you were avoiding me, and that's just not going to happen. So I just wanted to make sure that we were creating a safe workplace for, for everybody. They, so they your did... no means no comment means nothing to me in terms of— I was going to of... say,
2: so in that situation, no means yes.
1: That will be cut out of the podcast because that's not <laughs> any lesson— that anybody should take away ever. No means no. The first time. I love that video to this day.
0: Clear your conscience by submitting your workplace confession at physicsatwork.com slash podcast.
1: Thanks for listening to the show. If you work in HR and have a story to share, please visit my website, physicsatwork.com slash podcast. Stories are what people remember and how we connect. So please share yours with me. Thanks. Adam knows that growth comes with fear, risk, and sharing uncomfortable truths.